0: Scripture reading today is uh, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 68 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, "Give us water to drink." Moses replied, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test?" But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, "Why do you bring us up out of Egypt? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst?" Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. All right, I invite you to join me in prayer as we begin. God of grace, uh, as we come into this place, we come from so many different places, um, oftentimes really hiding the condition of our heart, because the truth is, even though we might come with faith, we might come with doubt, we might come with joy, we might come with sorrow, all of us are more of a mess than we care to admit. That's what we have in common. That's what is universal today. We come with that mess and we come really not trusting very many people with that brokenness and fragmentation and we're often very hesitant to trust you. But you show us over and over again that you move towards those with broken lives. You, you move towards failed servants of God. You move towards people who have weak faith. And you show us your love. In fact, you pour out yourself sacrificially to make up for what we can't do. So that we can be in relationship with you. So that we say, even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, in Christ, through what you have done, we're more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And we pray now that through your scripture, you would stamp that message on our hearts as we walk out of this place. And that you would uh, speak to us through your grace in such a way that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how much we today are asking the question that the Israelites are asking in this story. It's summarized by the narrative or the narrator. narrator. I guess is how you say that. It's summarized right at the end. I don't know if you caught this. It's like new information, right? At the end, we're given a sort of a summary of the question they were really asking with their behavior. Is the Lord among us or not? I don't know how much we're really asking that question. You could probably say someone who's, you know, moves to a new town and is looking for a church is maybe sort of asking that question. Coming to a church and saying... Is this a place that I, you know, I, maybe I have a litmus test of a church needs to have this or that or the other, and I'm saying, in a sense, with that list, is God here or not? Um, and, you know, you might kind of cynically say, and well, where do you get that list, and who gave it to you, and, you know, where do you get the right list, but... Nonetheless, I think maybe we ask that, some people ask that question. Maybe others, in a sense, you might get it from a whole different place. You might get someone who would describe themselves as not religious, as agnostic maybe, or they'd say they're secular humanist. And let's say they're writing an article about a religious leader or about a spiritual organization and, they, um, and they're kind of maybe in evaluation mode, also applying a litmus test. Um, and in some kind of sense, although they wouldn't say it this way, they might be kind of saying, is it is it legitimate to look at this person or this group as a place where God is? Um, and so they might use some kind of system of evaluation. You know, is there political motivations underneath the surface? Is there financial motivations? under is there hypocrisy or, um, uh, you know, other things involved? Well, then maybe it's not really that kind of place. Or maybe they say, well, there's Uh, Social justice happening and welcome of the poor and radical tolerance and um, not pushing really uh, principles about uh, sexual practices into other people's lives. And so maybe this place is, is legitimate in a certain kind of way. So there are these ways maybe that we say, is God here or not? But to be honest with you, I don't think most of us are asking that question most of the time. Is God among us or not? I think if we're honest we tend to get a little kind of just burned out on that question. We tend to really just find ourselves in a place of um, what I would just call um, um, functional disbelief with respect to the question of God's presence. It probably goes a little bit like this. At one time, I, I, I hoped for that question be, to be true. At one time, I studied hard or I looked hard into things, and I hoped is God among us or not? And I thought I would find an answer, but eventually I, you know, I didn't see the miracles and there wasn't the dramatic stuff I hoped for. And eventually I just kind of had to settle in and say, well, maybe that question just has to be shelved. And maybe I just kind of go into uh, the spiritual mode or the Christian church mode for maybe just a sense of feeling a little bit better about myself or a little bit better about my morality or a little bit better about raising my kids on a sort of path that I want them or a little better about having some community in my life. But is God here or not? I don't know. And this passage, really, what it's doing and what the narrator is tipping us off to, it's inviting us. It's trying to entice us into asking this question. Trying to entice you to, to kind of just stir up a little bit and say, you know what? Let's look into this question. Let's ask the question that, in a, in a sense, our hearts really long to have answered. Is God among us or not? And it does so, I mean, I'm not, it, it has a little bit behind it that it's, that it's drawing us in. Two things that God does in this story that draw you in to this question, to, to prioritizing this question, to maybe lifting this question up a little bit in your life right now. So let's look at these two things in this story. The first one is how when we ask the question, is God among us or not? God responds with incredible patience. So God, first of all, responds with patience. Um, The Israelites say to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Some of you, maybe if you were here last week or here some of the weeks before, you're going, you know, theme alert in terms of these people called the people of Israel, asking these kinds of questions, grumbling, doubting, not believing, It's like, you know, they're out in the desert. It's the desert narratives. It's the wilderness wanderings. And it's the time, we're told, it's framed in terms of spiritual training and formation. But it's like their learning curve is a straight edge, you know, and it's not going up. And you just keep getting these stories over and over again. In fact, let's just look particularly at the issue of water. They're they're, um, grouchy about water at this point. What do they know about water? Well... Um, you know, mentions the staff that Moses hit in the Nile. And there's, we're right, brought, right back to the beginning of the story. Pharaoh thought he was going to use the Nile River and its water to drown all the Israelite babies. The future fighting force of Israel was going to be drowned. But God saved, what does Israel know? God saved out of the water their leader Moses, who then led with this staff and he went and he hit that Nile and it, and it created this miracle, this incredible miracle Um, act of desolation where the water turned into blood. And then later on in the plagues, water came from the sky and God turned it into giant-sized hail balls that came down and destroyed fields. And then, of course, kind of the main event in terms of water and what God can do. And these Israelites, they supposedly know all of this, that, you know, it came down to them being backed up against a giant, huge body of water and they turn around and God just parted away in the middle of it and the water just moved to the side as they walked on dry dry ground and then their enemy finally defeated as the water gets released back I mean they know a lot of stuff about water and they're just not remembering <laughs> they have they're, they're not utilizing their memory they're not bringing it to the table they are just terrified you know we're a little bit thirsty we're all gonna die you know and you just kind of look at it and you go, clearly what you know so clearly is that you have this God who's just the king of water. I mean, he's water resources guy, right? Like, come on, where are, where's your brain right now? You're thinking as you read this whole bigger story. And um, you really look at it and you say, you know what? This is at the point where you would think, you know, a reasonable God would want a reasonable group of people to kind of, come on, use your brains a little bit. And he would, in a sense, do something other than what he does. You know, that at least maybe he might rebuke them, you know, bring a little bit of shame, maybe bring a little bit of guilt, maybe bring a little bit of punishment, maybe bring a little bit of embarrassment. You know, there's a sense in which God could put them on trial right now for how they're acting, and he doesn't. He doesn't. You just think about yourself. How much do you question God's existence, Right? How much do do you doubt his presence, his ability? How often do you say, in a sense, I'm going to die of thirst in my life. Where are you, God? And he's incredibly patient. patient. He doesn't put you on trial. And I think we need... there's, There's two kind of maybe categories we find ourselves with respect to this. On the one hand, we might need to know this just dramatic patience of God just so that we finally know the door is open to bring our questions. This story, in a sense, says... If you open up that question of, God, are you here? Where are you? Are you around? As much as you might have evidence in the past, as much as you might be drawing on things that are obvious, but you're still asking that question, there's, a, there's kind of a big message here of God will patiently walk along with you with that question. And for some of us, that's a huge relief. I can, I can come with my questions. I can come doubting God's presence. I can do that. It's okay. And some of us, you know, we need this lesson to remember how to be patient with other people. There's a sense in which if you're following the Christian faith, then you find yourself in this category of people who really there's no way around it. You know, you're a Christian, you're a minister. I know we don't usually apply that word to our lives, but but it's very biblical. It's very New Testament to think about anyone who is, is a part of the church is being equipped by the church to do ministry, which is selflessly bringing God's love in all kinds of different ways in your life. So in a sense, everybody has a ministry. And it usually involves other people. And they usually try your patience. Some of you just thought of a name when I said that. (laughs) Right? Um, And so what... What this story keys us into is God's patience, in a sense, as our source of patience. Uh, one of my favorite new songs, uh, it's an old spiritual, actually, portrays Jesus and kind of gets, gets us into the realm of how Jesus, his, his own patience with respect to us. They led him. It's called uh, Not a Mumbling Word, I think is the title of it, or he never said a mumbling word. So here's a couple of... Uh, Lines of it. They led him to Pilate's bar, in a sense. They led him to put him on trial. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They led him to Pilate's bar, but he never said a mumbling word. They all cried, crucify. Not a word, not a word, not a word. They all cried, crucify, but he never said a mumbling word. Now, I bring that up because what the Christian believes is that Jesus stood in for you, who he, who in a sense, he could have put you on trial, and instead he stands on trial for you and doesn 't say a word of defense, he just allows himself to take on so that you um, so that he can patiently draw you back into relationship and that 's exactly what 's going on actually in verse six with a very strange line in the story, if you don 't catch the legal connotations where God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. It's legal language. It's courtroom language. I will, I will stand. It's his choice not to put you on trial, but to stand in your place. And here's the thing. If you know that, if you grab a hold of that in your life, if you let that seep into the cracks of your own impatience, and you see how patient God is with you, then you will learn how to be in ministry, being patient with others. Then it will be a catalyst, not that you're just copying him, but that it's flowing out of you. Because ministry is being selfless, even sometimes when, it's, when you could be, if you got out of the ministry track, you'd be defensive and you'd be putting someone else on trial. Ministry is, I serve And I follow God's lead in patience and how he was patient with me. So God responds to our, um, our question with patience. He also responds with water. He responds with water. Psalm 114 helps us see something very important about this story. It connects the felt need with the real deeper need. It connects, in the last verse of Psalm 114, it connects the question of God's presence with the question of providing water. Somehow they're connected. And so Psalm 114 says, Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. The Israelites are thinking about water. They're thinking about actual, real thirst. You know, their their throats are parched. But God sees that they're spiritually parched and that that's actually their greater need. They're spiritually parched in that they're absolutely not inclined to trust God in this moment. And it would be like living water for them if they did. And so what he does, and this is... This is, again, what's so gracious about God in this story is that he gives them the thing they think is so important. He gives them water, but he uses it to get at their spiritual need. You know, he basically says, oh, okay, okay. You're not going to (laughs) die. It's fine. You're not going to die. I'm going to give you your felt need in such a way that it sort of opens up the door and opens up your eyes to your real need, which is to trust me, which is to be filled with me, which is to thirst for me. And so he's trying to teach them something that we're we're all taught. If you're a reader of the Psalms, um, we're all taught this with Psalm 63, where David is in the desert, and he shows that even though physical thirst is, of course, the presenting issue, he sees something way deeper, and that's what he goes to in prayer. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek You, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. That's what God's trying to teach these folks in the desert and what he's trying to teach us. Just how incredibly eager he is to provide the water that will teach us to rely on him and on his presence He's so eager to show us this. There's this old quote by an unknown medieval English writer portraying God this way. God Almighty is like a taverner, like a owner of a tavern, that has good wine to sell. Californians are excited at this right now, Northern Californians. God Almighty is like a taverner that has good wine to sell to good drinkers. He taketh them to house and giveth them a taste. Soon, when they have tasted thereof, and they think the drink good and greatly to their pleasure, then they drink day and night. And the more they drink, the more they want. Such liking they have of that drink that of none other wine they think, but only to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. Of no other wine they think, but only for to drink their fill and to have of this drink all their will. That's a picture of someone who's learned the, the Psalm 63 lesson, who's learned the lesson of the desert. I need God. Simon Tugwell is a Catholic writer, and he, he summarizes this, this quote in response to it, saying, God himself, like a shrewd taverner, has come to us first. He's eager. He has come to us first to seduce us from the narrow path of worldly duty, to know the sweetness of his love. And that's God. And we often come, quite frankly, as he's, he's so eager to help us see this, and we come with um, doubts, and we come with questions, and we come with uh, our resistance all in place. We come with our barriers erected between us and God. God. In fact, it, it starts to seem, when you see how eager God is to show us that he can satisfy our, our thirst, it starts to seem, in a sense, like our barriers are the only thing in the way. They're really the only thing stopping this whole process from happening, from us coming in and enjoying the good drink that God gives us. As we say, well, I don't like how the, the drink is bottled, or I'm afraid it might be some kind of God's Kool-Aid, you know, that he's trying to get us all to drink. I'm not really sure if, I, if I'm down with that and to all such resistance that we bring to the table, God just keeps saying over and over and over again, here, here's some water, have a drink. He says it to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She's got the barriers up hardcore. In fact, basically, um, you can walk through this story and see how it's, it's basically a story of peeling away one barrier at a time as this woman and Jesus interact at the well. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sounds really good, but she doesn't bite yet. And she kind of gets a little theological. You know, that's a good barrier too, right? I don't know if I, I have some theological differences with that living water stuff. But then it all kind of comes down. When she does that, she tries to go theological, and she basically brings up the presence question. I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In a sense, saying what often a lot of us say, "Ah, eh, is God really here? Who knows? And she's saying, he'll be here someday, but for now, sorry. I, I don't really know what to say, Jesus. And she just melts when he finally says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And something right there turns. Something right there she finds so transformative In this living water, in this Jesus who has come, who says he's the one from God, he embodies the presence of God, that she runs back to her town and brings the whole town with her to learn about this living water, about this Jesus. Something finally broke through her barriers. So let your walls down. I don't know what they are. I don't know what your barriers are. But there are going to be some that you have to work through to come and drink from the living water, from the stream. It's normal. And there's going to be a lot of questions about presence and whether God is here or not, but he can handle them. Just come. Try to let some of them down enough that some of the water can spill over the wall, perhaps. Let me just close with this. C.S. Lewis puts it well in uh, The Silver Chair in the Narnia series. When he has Jill, this, this little girl, encountering the lion... She's desperate for water, and he's standing over the stream that she finally finds. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do it? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without even noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? she said i have swallowed up girls and boys women and men kings and emperors cities and realms said the lion it didn't say this as if it were boasting nor as if it were sorry nor as if it were angry it just said it i dare not come and drink said jill then you will die of thirst said the lion oh dear said jill coming another step nearer. i suppose i must go and look for another stream then There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you break down our barriers, that you meet us right where we need you most, right in our thirsting, that you come and you meet us and you make sense to us in such a way that we might walk away saying, I can believe that God is among us. And I pray that you help us through your Holy Spirit and through the knowledge and belief in what your son Jesus has done on our behalf as we think about him coming and being present on this earth to meet us in our disbelief, to meet us in our sin, to meet us in our brokenness. And we ask that you meet us as we come towards the table of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. We pray in Christ's name, amen.